0: If you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it, and turn with me to. We're going to be right at the end of Esther chapter six. So we're one verse there in chapter six, and then we're gonna we're gonna make the little jump over into chapter seven. So we're in Esther six fourteen. Gonna gonna go all the way through chapter seven, and we're just gonna jump in. So would you stand with me now as we as we really set our hearts uh, to receive? to receive God's word to us this morning. This is Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. And we're going to start off just going through uh, through verse 6 of chapter 7. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe... And enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the book of Esther, which presents a number of challenges, which can be hard to track at times. But it reminds us of our need for your spirit to speak, to give us ears to hear, to give us hearts to receive. So Lord, do that now. Help us to hear your word. Give us hearts to receive your word that we might live according to your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the opening of... of Paul's first letter to the uh, Corinthians, right? Right at the beginning of chapter 2, he's sort of explaining to them uh, why it is that he has written to them. And, and he says, looking back at his time spent with them in person, he has spent a great deal of time with them in person, he's looking back at that, and he says, "'I, when I came to you, brothers,' did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you. Here's the part. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's, that's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's going, look, I didn't try to impress you. I didn't try to wow you. I didn't try to be creative. I didn't try to be innovative. I intentionally, he's going, I intentionally kept it simple. I kept it plain. I preached who Jesus is, and I preached what Jesus did. And that sort of sums up, doesn't sort of, it completely sums up our desire here in terms of preaching and teaching. And Paul even goes further. He really sort of so he, so he lays that out there, and then he goes a little further and kind of captures the spirit of it, too. So, so not just what he wants to do, but also the way that he wants to to do it. When he says, "And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling," that is a that is a spirit that I understand. That's a posture that I appreciate. In fact, just before the service, I don't, y'all may not realize this, but our, our worship team, they get here about 8.15, 8.30, somewhere in there every Sunday morning. They come in here and they rehearse. And then, and then I come in and we do like a sound check to make sure all this stuff works. And then we go into a little room over here and we, we talk through the service and we pray together. And my prayer this morning uh, was that God would strengthen all of us in that, And that he would strengthen me in that because I understand that posture of weakness. I understand that posture of fear. I understand that posture of trembling. And Esther, as we've looked at all these different themes, continues through all the drama to point us back to Jesus. Like That's what ultimately we're looking for in Esther. Now sometimes, if we can be honest, that has been a challenge. Uh, There's been more than a couple of weeks where somebody's come up to me at the end of the service and be like, man, I read ahead. Did not know what we were going to do with that passage. Uh, it's, but sometimes we've had to, some kind of work for it. But here in chapter 7, here in chapter 7, it's there in a really sort of obvious sense. Esther 7, at least from our perspective today, like from our vantage point at this stage of human history, Esther 7 isn't just hinting at Jesus, and it's not just whispering. Jesus Esther 7 is shouting Jesus for us through the through the poetic reversal that God works in the story that we see in this passage breaking into the narrative we see this incredibly beautiful and emotional moment taking place pointing us to Jesus and it comes through two uh, sort of primary elements these are these are Uh, These are the ways that we see it. We see it in the way of personal identification. So remember that. We see it in the way of personal identification, and we see it in the way of particular intercession. Those are the two ways. And both of them, both identification and intercession, I'm saying this on the uh, the front end here, so it's not a mystery. They both point us to Jesus. And it's not like it's coming out of nowhere, all right? It's not like it's springing up out of the blue, it's coming right in the flow of the story, which has really been building up to this point. Look at verse 14 there, because, because what it says in verse 14 really sets a rhythm for us for everything that follows. Remember this, Haman, Haman has been with his wife and friends. At this point, you need to know this, Haman has had a really bad day. Now, we, like, we don't like Haman. We said that last week. I literally said, I just don't like Haman. I don't want to be around Haman. But Haman has had a bad day up to this point. Nothing has gone the way he planned. He wanted the place of honor. He wanted the higher status. He got there early. He got there early in the morning to try and make that happen. But instead, it's Mordecai, his mortal enemy, who gets the higher status. It's Mordecai who gets the honor. And Haman was the one who was forced to. This is the same exact day. This morning that we're talking about right now is the same day that he was forced to declare to everyone in Susa the greatness of Mordecai, to parade him through the city and declare his greatness. Okay, this is Haman's nightmare. Whatever your worst case scenario is for a day, that's what Haman is experiencing here at the end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7. And his wife and friends, this is why you've got to be careful who you marry and be careful who your friends are. They are the worst, okay? She's basically just like, yeah, bro, you're done. No, no, like, entering into it with him. He's like, ah, this is the worst. And he's like, yeah, you're going to die. This is, you're going to die. And here's what 14 says. It says, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So again, it's important that we realize this is still that same day. He's gone home for his lunch break. He's vented to his wife and friends. And now the king's eunuchs have shown up to bring him to the feast. He's had a miserable morning. He's been humiliated, but it's not over. He still has to go to the feast, and Haman isn't ready. That's the idea here. That's the idea. There's maybe even a sense that he is running late for the party that he's been invited to. He knew the time, he knew the place, but he's not there. And so now we're getting a glimpse behind the curtain. Now we're getting a glimpse behind the curtain and the wizard who seemed to be the one who was pulling all the strings, right? The great and powerful Haman, the one making all the moves. Now it seems clear that he has lost control of the flow of events. And here's the poetic reversal. It happens right there in the transition from verse 14 to verse 1. And it's the narrator who sets the scene for us. And it's subtle, but we remember how at the beginning. You remember Esther at the very beginning. She was also called Hadassah. You remember that? For most of the story, she's been just a pretty young girl. That's been her role to play. From the outside, she's been treated as little more than an object of the king's desire. Sort of a highly decorated imperial hostage. But chapter 7 brings a change. It was hinted at in chapter 5. It was. It was was sort of the groundwork was laid in chapter 5. But here it's explicit. And we see it right there. As we read, the king and Haman went into feast with who? Queen Esther. She's not just Esther anymore. In fact, we hear that title used four times in verses 1 through 5. Four times she's not just Esther, she's Queen Esther. You know, we said a few weeks ago that Esther 5 could be a missions passage. Uh, You may not remember that. I remember that. I said that. And by missions, we mean evangelistic. That's what we mean when we say missions here. We mean evangelistic, meaning proclaiming the good news. That's what evangelistic means. One author and missiologist has said that in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. That's a unique perspective. That in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's Glory is that we aim to welcome new creation sons and daughters of the King of Glory into the worship of the King of Glory. That's what missions is. That's one of our that's one of our primary values here. It's one of our core values of the church. Worship, which we do, community when we gather together whether in smaller groups or big groups and then also mission. We want to bring the nations to the white hot enjoyment of God's kingdom. That's their aim. That's the destination that we want. And the vehicle or the conduit of that is human relationships. And so God's strategy has always been one of relationship. It's always been relational in that. That's what Jesus is getting at in 1 John, or sorry, in John 20. You see, in John 20, it's the resurrected Jesus. He's died. He's been raised again, and he's talking with the disciples. And they're trying to wrap their minds. I mean, you can imagine being them in this. They're trying to wrap their minds around the fact that, that Jesus is not dead anymore, right? Because I mean, because we have to come to terms with this that resurrections were no more normal in the first century than they are today. Okay, and what Jesus tells them in their fear, right? He appears to them. They're terrified, as you would expect. And he says this, he says, the first thing he says is, peace be with you. And I've always loved that. Just peace be with you. And then he says this, As the Father Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's what Jesus says. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And what we see in Esther, right? So, almost 500 years before the birth of Jesus is sort of a preview of what Jesus did in coming to earth. And we see it in this title for Esther, this title of queen that's now established, this title that's now written there, because Ahasuerus seems to hold her in high regard, right? And so, that title, uh, like recognizing that it, speaks to something, something about her character. It says something about who she is, and that's critical. Like, don't, ever, don't ever underestimate the value of a reputation. I, I think, I think we, need to, we need to remember that. A good reputation has its own sort of like gravitational pull, doesn't it? Like, You want to be around people with a good reputation. And here's the other thing. People don't like to listen to people they don't like. I don't know if you've noticed that. But people don't listen to people they don't like. If you don't believe that, just just watch the next political bait and then debate and then watch the like, commentary that happens afterwards. Like, uh, the opposite party could say the sky is blue and beautiful and somebody, well, that's really kind of grayish today. And then they unpack that for the next 45 minutes while we sit there listening to them. Now, we don't do that. People don't listen to people they don't like. And these days, we don't even pretend to do that. Like, that courtesy is gone. But Esther, and, and Esther, I, I, like she's kind of become a favorite character of mine in all this. She, she's done the hard work of relationship building. And she's built that relationship from an unfavorable position. She was swept up, you got to remember, she was swept up into the narcissistic whims of a pagan king. She was taken from her life and forced into a harem. And so she didn't have an easy But there's something for us to learn here, both as we engage with one another and as we engage with the world around us. You see, and and I really I want to be careful here. Uh, Esther has earned her place in it all. I really I really don't like using that word uh, that she's earned it. There's a there's a real danger in taking that too far. But in this relationship, and this I mean the reality is this is true in every relationship. She has hung in there to develop what we might call relational capital. And we're not just talking about the last two days. Like, not just the last two days in the story, the last three chapters. Not just those last two days. There's something underneath the surface of the story. Like, back in the the years of silence, back in those unknown moments, the unrecorded moments, making it clear that here's what it is. Ahasuerus trusts Esther. You might think about any relationship you've ever had. Any meaningful relationship is going to be founded on some level of trust, right? Like that's why, the, that's why the bride and groom stand in front of each other and make the same promises on their wedding day. They're saying the same thing, making the same promises, making that vow. That's why friends will communicate with each other, seek input from one another. It's because of trust. And so Esther... Esther has carried herself in such a way that brought the king to this point of trust. There's this relational capital that's been established. And I don't see any reason to see this as strategic. Like, I don't think she's been sitting in the harem plotting this out, going, I'm going to just be really cool with him, and then one day I'll need a favor and he will, he'll grant that favor. I don't think it's been strategic. I think it's mostly been survival. Remember back in chapter 4, she was sort of blissfully unaware. Do you remember that? The edict goes out, Mordecai comes to her. She has no idea what's going on. It was Mordecai who said, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So it's not not really a story of her effective strategy. This moment is more a testament to her authenticity. It's a witness to her character. And now he, that's the king, He's so invested with her that he's still making these big promises to her. Now, he wants to help her. Look at verse 2. It says and on the second day, now that's the second day, that's the second feast. There's not a whole other day. It's just the next day after the first feast. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? And in 3, Esther shows us the way of personal identification. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She is quoting the edict. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. This is, this is the moment of truth. That's really what this is. We've seen a number of these along the way, and none have been bigger than this one. A moment of truth is a moment that changes everything. And so she's overcome the fear, she's overcome the hesitation that we saw back in chapter 5, and now she's out. At this point, she is exposed. Don't underestimate the, the risk here, because the truth is that in order for her to be rescued, for her to be rescued herself, and in order for her people to be delivered, she has to reveal for the very first time her own ethnicity. Before this, it didn't matter. Up until this moment in the story, she's kept that hidden, as Mordecai had commanded her. But this is the only way. Exposure is the only way. Vulnerability is the only way. It's the way of personal identification. It's what another writer said, that in, in, in order to secure her people's salvation, she must risk her own destruction. And more than that, in order for Esther to be saved herself, she must identify with the very people who have been condemned to die. She has to be out. She has to be known. She has to be willing to lose herself in order to gain her people. And we're so familiar with this type of story that we have to be careful not to miss it. You see what I mean when I say Jesus kind of screams off the pages here? We're sort of inoculated to this type of story. You know what that means? means It means we get just enough of it that we never actually get it. And so we can be numb to it, but in a very real sense, she has to let go of her autonomy. That's what she has to do. She has to lay aside her, her own liberty, that freedom and self-determination, things that we still cling so closely to today. She has to set that aside. Everything that she's built up, all that relational capital, she has to be willing to, she has to, be willing to lose that for the sake of her people. The law of the king, the edict of the king, sealed with his Signet ring says that her people must die. And up to this point, she's been safe. She's been safe, but as she speaks, she's standing in solidarity now with her people. And there's a reverberation there of what we know as the gospel. Like what we call the gospel is sort of embedded in this story. When we talk about sacrifice in the church, right? our eyes immediately go to the cross. So, if you ask a kid a question in church, they like automatically say Jesus, right? It doesn't matter what the question is. I got a 90% chance that that's going to be right, you know? Our eyes immediately go to the cross because when we talk about sacrifice, what we know is that the way of Jesus is the way of self sacrifice, it's the way of self denial. That's the pathway for any who would be called a Christian. Comparing Esther and Jesus, I like how David Strain has, has said it. He, he, he says this He says, He says, Esther secures only temporal deliverance from the unjust tyranny of an earthly monarch. Jesus secures eternal salvation from the just and holy judgment of Almighty God. Esther stands with her people and intercedes on their behalf. Jesus stands with his people and dies in their place. Esther must persuade the king to spare the Jews, but in Jesus, the God whose law condemns us himself bears its penalty and secures our pardon. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. And it's not flashy. I mean, I want it to be. I want to impress you. I want to come up here and like, I mean, like, we were kind of joking before the service, like get Colin over here, man, do a little drum thing. Let's get this thing going. Claire, could you play something really powerful on the piano while we're going, this is the gospel. And then we can start kind of getting, I can start bouncing around. I can't bounce around. I look ridiculous doing that. But if, if I could, I want to do that. Just draw you in with my, with my rhetoric and, and pull you into a story that makes you just go, I'll take whatever hill he's asking me to climb. But that's not what Paul did. Because so I want to be careful there not to manipulate you. And we could do it. She's really good on the piano. He's really good. We could get Ryan up here singing songs, man, just kind of playing in the background, hitting with the cue. Now's the time, man. Get their heart stirring. All of a sudden, Fred comes in with a bass drop, and you're like, is that my soul? <laughs> I think that's my soul. And people are weeping and crying. They're turning. I mean, I, hey, it's, that's a, that sounds good. But that's not, again, that's not what Paul did. Paul preached Christ and Him crucified. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ, it begins with the way of identification. It begins with Jesus being identified with us. It's that 2 Corinthians 5 expression, and y'all, we quote this one all the time. This is not brand new to you. It should not be. If this is your first time here, you can be like, yeah, this is brand new to me. If not, you should have heard this. That for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. I will plead with you to memorize that verse. That's the word given to the church. That's the word given to Christians. Because to be a Christian, here's what it means. To be a Christian just means being a follower of Christ. That's all that means. It's to walk in in the way of Jesus. And his is the way of identification. And beyond that, here's the other thing. It's the way of particular intercession. Look at verse 7 here. Verse 7 has got a little bit of poetic justice to it. It starts with this. It says, Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And here's 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg For his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover... The gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king abated. It's tempting to just kind of jump on Haman here, but let's think about the king for a second. He finds himself in a real bind. And then Haman just completely unravels, right? We can only imagine what Esther was thinking during the rest of this episode because because it's interesting how for the rest of this, she just remains silent. It's this guy, Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king. We met him back in chapter 1. It's this guy who comes up with the bright idea (laughs) To dispatch Haman on the very scaffold that he had built. You sort of get the sense that, like, maybe Harbon had been waiting for this moment. You know what I'm like, maybe Haman wasn't everybody's favorite guy in the king's court. They're like, one of these days we're gonna get that fool. And they do. Like he's just like, wait, he just I love this guy. He comes out of nowhere and just has the greatest idea the king has ever heard. Why don't we just hang him on that? Like, right? And it's understandable. Haman is very unlikable. There's plenty of reasons to not like him, and the king is able to be done with this guy who has manipulated him. And we're left again with this image of these like, two contrasting characters. Right? We've got Haman, as it turns out, has, has only been operating for his own self-interest. And Esther, she's willing to walk in the way of self-sacrifice for the sake of her people. That's what intercession looks like. That's what intercession is. It looks like Jesus, you know, back in 2 Corinthians 5, just before that gospel verse about Jesus, who knew no sin, becoming sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Just before that, there's this declaration from Paul to the church. And that's what we are, right? We're the church. We're part of the church. Here's what he says. He says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. He says, behold, The new has come. That behold there is critical. Behold. Take a look. See that the new has come. And then he says this. Therefore, this is Paul, then we, therefore, are ambassadors for Christ. Because we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, and because the new has come, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. A few years ago, back when I was still working in the electrical business, I may have still been in college at this time. I was with my dad on a job site. And this electrician was showing us this conduit that had been installed. And, and it, was a whole, it was a whole, like, if you can imagine a pipe organ, that's kind of what this looked like. It was a whole rack of pipes, uh, running uh, across the ceiling and um, all exposed, like not hidden in the walls. It was always going to be visible, not tucked away. And still being new to that trade and still working on like my own craft within that trade. Um, this was all really impressive. It's hard to sell electrical conduit as an impressive thing. So this is a reach, I get that. But it was. It was like, for me, it was like a work of art, man. It all ran in these perfect lines, and it would turn at the same angles, and then, you know, it just kind of all went... All... And it was, it was beautiful to me, and I was like jealous of this guy. i like, how did this person do this? The amount of mathematical calculations he had to do to accomplish that tested every bit of my history degree from USC. Anyway, um, it was just, it was like, this is not, I'll never, it was, it was so humbling, and here's this just lowly electrician guy, but he was also, there was like this pride in him, because he was showing his good work, and the, and the pipe went up, and it turned, and it went up a little more, and then angled over, and it came down, and then went over, and, and it just, it was this whole thing, and, and I was sitting there in awe of it, and I remember my dad, um, he, he, he was gentle with this so as not to crush this man. And so, Like he did, he complimented how neat it was. He was like, oh yeah, it looks really good, man. You did, you know. He complimented the craftsmanship. He complimented the intentionality with which he, he went around the existing structure that was there and, and he made his work look good. But then he paused and he said something that I have never forgotten. He said, um, but you know, the only reason we run conduit the only reason why we do this is to pull the conductors through it. It's just, to, it's just to get the wire from one point to another. And what my dad knew that I didn't know at the time was this man had put so many angles of bend in there, there wasn't a chance in the world he was going to get any wire through there. And so why it looked great, it was empty. It's just to get the wire from one point to another. That's the purpose of the conduit. But the conduit, you see, the conduit's not the end game. It's not the point. The conduit is the vehicle. It's the channel through which one object is conveyed. That's what it is to be an ambassador. That's what it means for us to be ambassadors, is for us to be conduits. To be a conduit is to serve in the role of Intercession is to stand in the gap, not hidden in the wall, not tucked away in an old, dusty, dark corner, but to live visibly as a conduit, not as the hero, but to introduce one another to the one who is. To introduce one another and to those around us to the whole point of the story. Is to bring the nation, and that includes our families, That includes our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, our sorority and fraternity brothers and sisters, our RUF people, our Young Life kids, our our whoever else in your life. It's to bring them into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. It's to show them Jesus. It's to show them the one who has identified with us in our frailty and, and who by grace has interceded for us in our need. Listen, apart from Christ, we're all Haman. Apart from Christ, we're all Haman. We're lost. We're condemned. There is a gallows waiting. But with Christ, we walk in the way of Jesus, loving God, loving others, ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. That's why anyone who walks into this church, I'm going to plead with you for just a second. That's why anyone who walks into this church, or really any any gathering, however big or small, of Christians should be able to clearly see the daily sort of moment-by-moment practice of self-sacrificing love in the lives of those who are called by Christ's name. You see, Esther reminds us that in a world of self-interest, be a conduit of self-sacrifice. Be a conduit of grace and hope and love. Build up the relational capital by loving others as Christ has already loved you. Be a conduit to Christ from the point of condemnation to the point of reconciliation. That's our goal. That's our purpose. And when we do it the way that God designs it, without the... Without the man, I, if we could do fireworks in here, I... I, I It would get smoky real quick, man, but we can do it without all that. We can do it with... If we do it the way that God tells us to do it, here's the beautiful thing. God gets the glory for that. The intimidating thing for us is to remember that God didn't just choose you to save you. He chose you to work through you. He knows your weakness, man. He knows your fear. He knows your doubt. He knows how bad I am at math. He knows how fearful I am when they start cutting holes in buildings and putting windows in them. He knows all that. And still he says, I'll choose that one and use him. May Christ receive the glory in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for not running away from us. Thank you for like the kid up here holding the football today. You hold our, this whole world in your hands refusing to let it fall. Refusing to give up on it never getting tired. Lord, when we are weary, that's when you show your strength. When we are weak, that's when you show your power. When we are timid, that's when you show your boldness. Lord, be at work in us as a church. Fill us with your your heart for your people. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.